is Unladylike. I'm Kristen, and it is time for another installment of Ask Unladylike, where I dig into the Unladylike mailbag to answer listeners' questions that Google could never. Before we get into advice with help from our delightful guest, Allison Raskin, I need to share a really helpful calling in from an unlady who was responding to Barbie Part 1, Welcome to the Dollhouse. Ella writes, I've been a fan of Unladylike since I discovered the show about a year ago. Thank you, Ella. I just listened to the Part 1 episode on Barbie and wanted to comment on some elements that didn't sit well with me. Specifically, the way y'all spoke about Barbie having breasts. From the very beginning of the episode, you reference Barbie being a sexualized doll, which I don't disagree with, but you many times only justify that view with the fact that she has breasts. This bothers me because one of the many things feminism has taught me is that breasts are not inherently sexual. You discuss how sometimes young girls do get wrapped up in misogynistic beauty standards, including wishing they had larger breasts at a young age, and those beauty standards are undeniably harmful. However, I developed breasts at a relatively young age, around 9 or 10, definitely younger than many of my peers. It sucked developing earlier than my peers for a variety of reasons, but above and beyond, because through no choice of my own, my child breasts were sexualized without my consent by adult men and also adult women. I think my race influenced this as well. I've written papers on the racialized phenomenon of the adultification of black youth, or how black youth in particular are typically perceived as older than they are. I remember adult women trying to guess my age and commenting on my body and my breasts to justify their guesses, which were usually wildly incorrect. It was humiliating, and those experiences, along with experiences of adult men pursuing me when I was a minor, despite obvious signs or explicit evidence that I was a minor, led to me feeling like none of those people were doing anything wrong. It wasn't their perception that was the issue. It was my body that was somehow inappropriate, sexual whether or not I was consenting and engaging and wrong. Now that I'm an adult, I look back at pictures of my young self at 10, 12, or 14, and to me, despite my breasts, I look so young. I would never ever look at someone who looks like I did then and think they were an adult simply because they had breasts. Anyway, that's my personal experience, but it just sucked to hear y'all equating just having breasts with sexuality. Again, not a defense of Barbie or Mattel or capitalist, white supremacist, misogynistic beauty standards, nor the ethical considerations of putting breasts on a doll for children, but I think the ways Barbie is sexualized and objectified are deeper than just giving her breasts. Nobody at any age with anybody should have their body non-consensually sexualized. Little girls with breasts and adult women with breasts are not sexualized because of their body parts. They are sexualized because of misogyny. Just wanted to share my thoughts. And I am so glad that Ella took the time to share her thoughts because she's absolutely correct in the process of talking about and even joking about a doll, an object, a commodity, I did lose sight of the real world experiences like Ella describes. 
I just wanted to share the letter because I have a feeling there might be other unladies who might have felt similarly about that conversation. Okay, now we are ready for Ask Unladylike, and I am ready to introduce y'all to our guest this episode. You've heard her before on the podcast, and now you're going to hear her again. She's fantastic. I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer and mental health advocate and content creator and podcaster. But I guess if I had to like narrow down what type of work I really love to focus on, I really like to explore like the intersection of romantic relationships and mental health. And so I had a book come out last year called Overthinking About You, Navigating Romantic Relationships When You Have Anxiety, OCD, and or Depression. And I think that 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 area is my sweet spot, although I love to talk about all things mental health. Is there anything that you learned about yourself in the process of writing it that has really stuck with you? Well, yes. <laughs> I say it like that, but yes. Yeah, so when I was writing the book, I got engaged and then my fiance walked out on me six months later, which was basically like my biggest fear come true he didn't really give a reason why other than something was missing and you know my entire world was flipped upside down in the middle of a pandemic and I think what I learned about myself was that what I had written in the book actually worked (laughs) like I kind of became the guinea pig of this book in a way I wish on no one but like My mental health did not deteriorate from that broken engagement in the same way my mental health took a hit from other breakups, even though this breakup was by far the biggest, the most disorienting, the most shocking. I had gotten to a place with my mental health that it didn't make me completely fall apart. You know, like I I was very sad and I was not happy, but I wasn't suicidal. I wasn't self-harming. And so I didn't tear myself down in the process, which was something that I did a lot in other breakups. So it was like, oh, okay, like we actually kind of can get better at this, <laughs> which was really wonderful because I had said that in the book, but I wasn't totally sure if it was true until, oh, it happened to me. And yes, it is true. <laughs> Well, how do you feel about jumping into some advice requests from unladies? Oh, I'd love to. Okay. Could you pick a pseudonym for this listener? I will go with um, Sally. That's like, I feel like a go-to fake name for me is Sally, because you don't really meet any Sallys anymore, but we all know the name. (laughs) (laughs) So here is what Sally writes. I'm an academic, and part of my tenure and promotion requirements include publishing. This has never been an issue for me since I've had a few research projects, and I can usually dip in for an article or a book chapter, but this year... I'm writing a chapter in a book about mental health within my profession and will be writing about my experience with PTSD. I'm so excited to be part of this project, and I'm a strong believer that talking about mental health openly is the only way to reduce stigma, but I'm also terrified. 
I've heard many comments and horror stories over the years about folks being penalized, fired, or not hired for being open about their struggles with mental health, both in academia and in other fields. I know there are some labor protections for disabled folks in the U.S., but I can't help but wonder if future employers will see this chapter on my CV or find it in a Google search and decide that my mental health is a reason to not hire me. There's also the question of professionalism. The idea of professionalism is so often coded as unemotional and masculine, and I fear that writing about my vulnerability may be viewed as unprofessional. While I don't subscribe to this idea of professionalism, I'm early in my career and will undoubtedly be job searching again sometime in the next few years. Any advice? How can I speak my truth and be honest about my life experiences while still keeping up this outmoded idea of professionalism? It's easy to say, just stop caring. But the fact of the matter is that my career may depend on how other people perceive me for better or for worse. You know, it's so funny. Growing up, my dad was like, don't tell people you have OCD because it will it'll affect your career. And then I luckily made a career around having OCD. <laughs> but I'm very aware of the fact that I did that, you know, in the entertainment industry, which is very different beast than academia and other other industries. So I think it's kind of twofold. I mean, one part of it, it's not that you don't care, but it's that you think that it's worth the distress. Mm. Like I'm assuming that this is something that's meaningful to you and that you can see the good that can come in writing about this and this being more talked about and getting your story out there. I think our stories are so powerful. And so it's not necessarily getting yourself to a place where it's like, screw everybody. I don't care. I'm going to tell my truth. It's more like I'm going to tell my truth because the risk is worth it. And I think that even sometimes that bit of a reframe can be helpful because then you're not putting pressure on yourself to like not feel worried or not or like pretend that you live in a world where there won't necessarily be consequences because I can't promise that there won't be but I think that you can get to a place where you you can see it as a brave choice instead of a foolish choice if that makes sense and then the other thing is there is a possibility, and I'm not obviously familiar enough with your work, but that this could really become something that you're a go-to person for. Mm. So instead of it being like this one chapter that you hope people don't find out about, um, you could really be a new path of your career where like you could really be, you know, the academic who openly talks about PTSD and their experience in their field and like you become an expert in that. And I think sometimes leaning into that instead of make then it's like, oh, why it's not that people would judge you for it. It's more like, oh, this is who I want to talk to about this <laughs> can be helpful. Is there any kind of prep work in terms of knowing you are in an okay space in your healing journey to be able to write about past struggles and things like that? That's a great question. I mean, there's I, I really like to write once I'm out of something. 
sometimes there's like this pull to write when you're in the middle of it but I I think that it can be really helpful to instead have that hindsight and to be in a back to baseline and sort of of working through what what just happened or what happened a while ago I would even look to you know what is the writing experience for you are you able to do it where it uh, it's something that you can kind of leave at the desk or is it something that is incredibly emotional for you both while you're working on it and throughout the day could be some signals that maybe that's not you're not quite quite ready to to process it but everyone is so different when it comes to this I, I really think that allowing yourself time to go back is helpful where like writing your first draft taking a week and then coming back and saying, is this what I want to share? You know, like in one chapter of overthinking about you, you know, because books take forever. I went back and I was like, whoa, why did I share that? And I like, took, I took that out, you know. So I think like allowing yourself to like do your first draft, your vomit draft, and then return and say like, I don't need to share all of me. What am I comfortable sharing? What is important to have for the message that I'm trying to create here? And what do I want to keep just for me? Now, you mentioned that you were, you managed to uh, build your career against your dad's advice, build your <laughs> career around mental health. But has it, even in the entertainment field, has it ever come up for you of getting a, a, a side eye or resistance on a project or something because people are like, oh, well, that's all, you know, Allison and her mental health. <laughs> I don't know, right? That's the whole thing. Yeah. Like I've had so many projects fail, so many things been turned down, um, and I'm not in the room to find out why that is. So I, I can't ever answer those questions, but it probably for the best. <laughs> Um, But what I do know is all the opportunities that have come to me by being open about it, by speaking to my experience and other people's experiences. And so that's all I can really focus on. You know, when I used to audition as an actress, you know, I'd leave an audition and, and my parents would be like, how did it go? And I'd be like, could not tell you. I have absolutely no idea what they're what they're looking for. I have absolutely no idea who my competition is. I don't know like what one note some exec is going to give that makes me not get it. So it's that idea of like I did it and now it leaves my mind and the rest is up to other people. <laughs> not scary at all. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also like mentally less it's mentally less overwhelming once you realize that once you leave that room, there's nothing you can do because you don't, it's not in your control anymore. And like releasing that control is scary, but it also allows you to like keep living your life. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Question number two. Let's get another pseudonym. Sally Ooh, okay. too. <laughs> uh, how about um, Louise? Ooh, Louise. I love this. Sally and Louise. Okay. I'm liking this crew we're assembling. 
<laughs> from the 1950s. <laughs> Okay, here's what Louise writes. I'm a 37-year-old queer woman in Seattle, and I've been single and not dating, mostly by choice, since the end of 2011. I was just starting to seriously consider dating again when the pandemic hit. Perfect timing. Last year, once things started to feel safer, I got on a couple of dating apps and quickly realized I hate them. Small talk is awful, especially over text, but I don't want to go out with a stranger without talking first. The only person I've had what felt like a real conversation with realized over the time we talked that she had a lot of healing to do after her previous relationship and wasn't actually ready for anything new yet. I've also realized that when it comes to meeting people in person, I am clueless at reading if I'm being flirted with or not in a way I wasn't so much pre-pandemic. So I'm curious, how the fuck do people start dating (laughs) during slash just after a pandemic with or without apps? How do you relearn to flirt and be flirted with? I've never been interested in hookups and would love to just magically be in a relationship and skip the looking part, but sadly... That's not our reality. Ooh, this is my bread and butter. I love this. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so I think that there is like an expectation that like if you're not having fun dating, then you're doing it wrong. But it's also work. My old therapist was like, it's a job. Like you're basically like looking for a person who is, you know, the vice president of your life. It is like a really great way to think about it where it's like, this is work, you know, this is a really important decision. And so like, it's gonna not always be the fun time. But saying that I think one of the ways to really bypass the really boring, tedious small talk is to initiate conversations with people that you would actually want to have. So instead of feeling like, oh, I should just be like, hey, how are you? <laughs> like, get into the stuff that you would want to talk to your friends about. The faster that you show up authentically on dating apps, the easier it is for other people to show up authentically and for you to actually weed people out. I've met many people off of dating apps. I'm on my second engagement off of a dating app. (laughs) Um, So I know that it could work. And I think it's really about like making that joke that you think is funny because if they laugh then great you know that they find you funny and if they don't laugh then you don't waste any more time with someone who doesn't share your sense of humor and I also always recommend having a FaceTime or a phone call before a in-person date I think that's a really great way to sort of avoid those dates where you show up and in five minutes you know you're not interested and so it will make it so that your ratio of in-person dates is maybe lower but they will be higher quality because you've had that screening period and then in terms of like in person like what's flirting what's not flirting who knows everyone's (laughs) flirting style is totally different you will have people that are like oh they were flirting with you and they'll be like no that's just a friendly person like it's not something that's like an exact science so again I think it's like just be yourself and having fun and if you put out an energy of openness and silliness and playfulness if that's the type of person you are some people aren't then like you will attract people with that similar energy um and I yeah I think that I think we kind of put too much pressure on is it flirting or is it not it's more like what do you want out of this 
whether or not I can identify this as flirting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of recentering yourself and like you can send out the signals too. And not even just signals, but asking. <laughs> like, <laughs> would you like to go on a date? What are you looking for in a relationship? I mean, that's one of the brilliant things about a dating app. It can be a little uncomfortable if you meet someone at a bar to be like, is marriage something you you want? But like on a dating app, it's perfectly acceptable to ask that. And so I think once you make it to that first date, really sitting down with someone and being like, what are you looking for on here? I'm looking for like a, a long-term partnership. Obviously, I have no idea if you're the person to do that with, but I know because I don't know you well enough yet, but like that's a goal of mine. Is that a goal of yours? And if not, oh well, cut my losses. I had a nice coffee, but I didn't wait three months because neither of us brought up what we were looking for. (laughs) For me, the way to use a dating app where it isn't detrimental to yourself and your mental health potentially is to use them super productively where it's not just like a hobby, it's not just like a game, it is explicitly being used to make in real life connections with other people. And to do that, you have to meet them. Going back to Louise, Louise doesn't like the apps. She would prefer to meet someone in person. And do you have any advice on striking up that kind of authentic conversation as you would in the apps in person if you see someone. I myself, I'm terrible at small talk. And also, it can be really scary to make yourself vulnerable and even just have a little bit of conversation with someone you're interested in. Is there a best way to make the approach? It is terrifying, but again, I it's leading with the kinds of conversations you want to have, right? So it's, you know, not just being like, oh, the weather. It's more like if something is happening, you know, you meet somebody at a party, bypassing the small talk. You know, I think about that Tim Robbins sketch from this current season of I Think You Should Leave where he, like, won't let this guy talk about his kids at a party. Sorry, there I go again, talking about my kids. You don't do me a favor. Next time I'm talking about my kids too much, please stop me. Thank you. Okay. Did anyone go to the travel You got it. Because he can't talk about his kids, he's suddenly like sharing the most like genuine parts of himself and has a great time. It is like, what's the scariest thing that's ever happened to you? You know, like, I don't think you need to go that wild with it, but I think that, you know, asking interesting questions, sharing like a, a funny story of yourself, cracking jokes if, if that's like your style. In my experience, like the people I've hit it off with in real life, it's because there is a, a chemistry there. I think it's more about noticing that chemistry and then following it rather than like, oh, this person's attractive. Let me force a chemistry, Mm. even though like I have a very stilted conversation with them. (laughs) Um, So like who who do you actually find yourself genuinely easy to talk to? Like even in a non-romantic way, I mean, all the time I'll run into people within five seconds. I'm like, oh, I could talk to this person for five hours and other people where I'm like, Have I ever had a conversation? How do human beings interact with each other? (laughs) Um, And so kind of like paying more attention to that conversational chemistry, maybe more than 
physical attraction can be a way to like help you find, you know, connections that have legs to them. And also one last thing to Louisa, I might be telling her something she already knows, but she is a 37 year old queer woman in Seattle. I would imagine that there are definitely spaces and events and groups in Seattle specifically designed for queer women, not even necessarily as a place to go like scope out potential romantic partners, but like you were saying, just kind of opening yourself up and getting more comfortable with just interacting with people in person because it is, I think all of us are kind of still rusty at it. Definitely. I think that's wonderful advice, you know, searching for people that have shared interests is a great way to just like expand your community and meet people and then meet people through those people. Okay, one last pseudonym. Who's going to go with Sally and Louise? Okay, I will go with Deborah. Deborah. All right. <laughs> Deborah writes, I personally don't suffer from clinical depression, but my aunt, best friend, my last two boyfriends and girlfriends have it in varying degrees. My mother passed away seven years ago, but her depression was severe. As a teenager to a single mentally ill parent, I wasn't in a place to provide her with the right support when she was going through it. I love all of these people, and I really want to help them the best I can without being condescending, bringing judgment, or accidentally contributing to something worse. I would love some advice about how to interact with people who are fighting this internal battle. I personally think one of my strengths is just being able to communicate openly and with positivity, and I would never tell them to just get over it or try a healthy diet and exercise or something along those lines. However, it is very difficult to feel like I'm saying the right thing time and again when somebody is living with chronic depression. I would love to know the appropriate amount of support to give and maybe some tips for helping people get the professional help they need. I feel like there must be other people out there fumbling around in the abyss of mental health information, and I'm wondering what trusted resources they've found to be a good ally. Any advice, insight, or connection would be greatly appreciated. This is a really prevalent question. I've talked a lot about it. I think that one thing we have to remember is that like everyone's symptoms manifest differently for them and everyone requires different types of support. So it can be really easy to be like, oh, friend A and friend B both have clinical depression. The same thing must work for each of them. When in reality, friend A might really want something different from you than friend B does. So something I, I like to shout from the rooftops is it's not on you to figure out how to support the people in your life. It's mm. on them to kind of tell you how. You can start those conversations and say like, what what do you need from me? Like what what in the past has made you feel better? I think is a really good question, especially with clinical depression, because oftentimes people go through phases of it. So maybe they haven't been in a depressive episode for a year, but they were in one last year. And so like what helped them last year? Like what got them out of it last time? And how can we sort of like tap into those resources again? And then the other big thing is, 
I think a lot of times we really focus on saying the right thing. But instead, I think we should focus more on showing up. Like, we're never going to, like, say the exact right thing. People aren't always even ready to hear the right thing if if they don't want to. Uh, but what they will remember is your presence and your love for them. So I think it can be really powerful to just watch a movie with a depressed friend. You don't need to, like, talk it through. You don't need to try to provide solutions. You're just showing up. You're showing them that like even though they are probably lying to themselves and telling them that they're unlovable and that their life is terrible and nobody cares about them, you're kind of providing direct evidence that that's not true because you're sitting next to them on the couch, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and um, I think just time spent can be really powerful instead of saying the exact right thing. Clearly, Deborah, Deborah feels a lot. And I think to, you know, the detail about their mom struggling with mental illness and then dying, how can Deborah also check in with herself and make sure that she is showing up and not trying to fix them, if that makes mm. sense? Totally. It's so hard to understand what our level of responsibility is to other people. Obviously, most relationships are not 50-50. They ebb and they flow. I'm in a I'm having a hard time. So you're you're giving me more. You're having a hard time. I'm giving you more. But ultimately, except in in cases of extreme crisis, people's mental health is is kind of their responsibility. Again, I don't think that applies, you know, if someone is in psychosis or someone needs inpatient treatment or like someone is really in crisis and needs someone to step in and, you know, get them the help that they need. But in these lower level situations, you know, it is doing what you can do without it depleting from yourself. It's like sending that text, sending that meme, having the phone call, stopping by, but it can't take over your life. And recognizing that, again, we have to look to the people to sort of guide us in how we can support them instead of throwing spaghetti at the wall and trying to, to solve this problem that I guarantee this person's been trying to solve on their own for quite some time. So why would you be the one that could figure it out? <laughs> well, that segues me perfectly into something I wanted to ask you about before we wrap, which is emotional support lady. Ah! <laughs> I love your sub stack. And I also think, Deborah, you might want to go check out emotional support lady. That could be a good resource as well. Oh, thank you for asking. Yeah, it's uh, it's my passion. Um, I, I realized that I posted a lot of stuff about mental health, but once I was back in school, I was like, I feel like I want a place that is just about this. That's not like interwoven with just like weird pictures of me with my parents. Um, so <laughs> I was like, I want to start a, a mental health focused Instagram account. And I landed on that the way I wanted to relay this information was through these really rudimentary, rudimentary stick figure cartoons um, that... Uh, Look, some people refer to it as my art and some people <laughs> refer to it as my doodles. So that's really in the eye of the beholder, but sort of sharing my experiences, what I've learned in school, what I've learned from other people in these like cartoon form has been so awesome to like see people relate to it, kind of get to the heart of something really quickly. And then from there, um, 
I now have a Substack, also called Emotional Support Lady, where I can do deeper dives into all of these topics where I, you know, like um, this week I published a post that's like signs when I'm that I'm not doing well mentally. And it's sort of the signs that alert me that my mental health is on the decline and I need to sort of step in and um, take better care of myself before things spiral further. And it was really a goal for me to sort of like create this community where we can openly talk about what it is like to struggle with our mental health and to learn from each other and to support each other and to also like share tips with each other of how to make it a little bit easier to be alive. <laughs> where can unladies find you? You can find me at Emotional Support Lady on Instagram and Substack and then just at Allison Raskin on Instagram and Twitter, which is now dying. Um, and then weirdly, my TikTok is at Allison Raskin Baby uh, because I created a second account for some reason I don't remember. <laughs> Thank you so much to Allison for being our expert advice giver. You should absolutely listen to her podcast, Just Between Us, with BFF Gabe Dunn. I've been a JBU fan for years now, and those two, what a dream team. Listen to Just Between Us anywhere you get your podcasts. If you have a question you think we could crack, Send it to hello at unladylike.co. I love it in voice memo form so we can hear you asking your question. Written emails work as well. You can also DM me on Instagram at unladylikemedia if you want to get in touch that way. If you enjoy the podcast and want to support it directly, join the Unladies Room. Head over to patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. You can join there for $5 a month. You get weekly bonus episodes, uncut interviews with some of our featured guests, and you simply make this podcast, this weekly podcast, possible. So come on over to the Unladies Room. Can't wait to see you there. You can also follow Unladylike on Instagram, TikTok, and for now, Twitter, which I guess I should call X. Oof. I guess it's time to head to threads, but for now, <laughs> at Unladylike Media on all of the places, Unladylike is an Unladylike Media production, executive produced, written, hosted, and edited by me, Kristen Conger. Mixing and mastering is by Multitude Productions. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next week. What is the most unladylike thing about you? Oh, I burp all the time. I'm burping constantly. I have horrible acid reflux. It's it, they're shocking. Uh, it's it's. I I warned my fiance early on. I was like, I burp a lot. And he was like, okay. And then like he was like, whoa. <laughs> and he didn't burp once during the Zoom. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I, um, it's more. I, I'm on a lot of Prilosec. <laughs> <laughs>